Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. In episode 59, I shared with you the Essential Ethics podcast from the Children's Bioethics Centre, Melbourne. A couple of case studies were presented that helped us define the zone of parental discretion, a space in which decision-making about a child's medical care is conceded to parents, even if it's not optimal clinical management. Today's stories come from the oncology department. In the second of these, we'll hear how a terminal prognosis might broaden the zone of parental discretion. But first, we're asked to consider when should an adolescent be permitted to make autonomous decisions about their health, even if these would lead to worse clinical outcomes. I'll leave further introductions to podcast host Professor John Massey. He's the clinical lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre and a consultant respiratory physician at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. To help us think about decision-making for teenagers, I'm joined by Dr Di Hanna from the Department of Oncology. Welcome, Di. Thank you. And Professor Claire Delaney from the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Claire. Hello. What I might put to you is a case. Uh, I just remind listeners that the cases are fictional, that we've made up, but of course... That does come from sort of a general experience and the sort of situations that we have found ourselves in before. So this afternoon what I'd like to talk about is Darren, a 16-year-old with acute lymphoblastic leukaemia, often called ALL. He's in year 11 at school and is an active sportsman and has a busy social life. The diagnosis of ALL has been a big shock and he's been struggling to come to terms with the duration and the complications of treatment. With standard treatment, he'd have about an 80% chance of cure. If he did not respond to standard treatment, he'd require a bone marrow transplant. The recommended initial chemotherapy regimen includes medications that will cause his hair to fall out and a Cushingoid facial appearance. Darren is adamant that he does not want these side effects. He's got his year 11 formal coming up and requests an alternative regimen even if it means less chance of success, Darren's parents seem to be in support of him to make this choice. So this is a difficult situation, and I think the ethical question is, is it ethically acceptable for Darren to be given a less toxic, but similarly less effective chemotherapy? Di, what do you think about Darren's choice? So I think this is a really tricky one. Um, So you rightly said ALL is a curable disease. The expectation is cure. And we know that the therapy for most children is very good at curing most children um, and young people. Um, For me, it would not be ethically acceptable to offer a less intensive treatment for a number of reasons, the first being that it would not offer cure. And what we know about therapy for ALL is that we have to risk stratify it, which means that based on his age, the biology of his disease is inherently more resistant and requires intensive treatment to cure him. If we gave him less intensive treatment, we could select a clone of ALL that becomes more resistant and makes treatment down the, the track even harder. 
um, to get him into remission. So that would take something like transplant off the table because we need to achieve remission for transplant to be effective in ALL. So without kind of effective intensive therapy up front, this young man would not be cured and, um, you know, would have a relatively short kind of life expectancy. So I suppose I'd want to be very clear with, with him about his choices and make sure that the family also understood that. Diane, could I just interrupt just because it, he's focused on, I guess, what most people in the community might be focused on, hair loss, altered appearance which would be temporary absolutely but are there other side effects as well that are worse yes that he has a right to be afraid of yes there are life-threatening side effects in some cases um we know that teenagers are more susceptible to side effects of treatment and tend to experience the more severe end of the spectrum for example, some children in, and young people in induction can end up with grade 4 pancreatitis and in intensive care. So yes, he, you know that the, the treatment itself has its risk, but we know that the treatment is very effective and in you know, 95% of cases we can get children and young people through that risky period. So Claire, he's 16 and we've heard from Di that he wants less treatment or accept less good outcome should should we let him do that i mean he's 16 after all it's now a case of does a 16 year old have a uh, is it ethical to allow a 16 year old to choose to refuse life saving treatment um the the first option is um to find that he is competent he's almost an adult he if he demonstrates that he understands the significance of his choice and the consequences to allow him to choose uh, not to go ahead with the standard treatment. And that clashes with that very strong principle of essentially not harming, not doing anything that you know is going to harm this child. The next option is to override his autonomous choice so what, where, where does Gillick come into this? So people often talk about Gillick competence, which was a, a court case in England around a 15-year-old girl attending a general practitioner, asking for oral contraceptive pill, but not wanting her parents involved and not wanting her parents' consent. And it ended up at quite a high level in the courts, and they agreed that she was of sufficient age and sufficient capacity to make a decision to have your contraceptive pill and therefore it was being called Gillick competence. So if Darren is your averagely bright Aussie male in year 11, he's reasonably articulate uh, and he's insistent, he's really worried about those side effects and doesn't want them. Is, is that just Gillick competence, is that good enough for us just to allow that? I think when it comes to life or death, um, it, it probably isn't enough. Claire? Yeah, yeah I was looking up, uh, looking at some notes about Gillick competence and um, 
this statement I think is important, that the original judgment set out a stringent test of maturity and it did so by insisting that a minor not only know and understand the relevant facts of any proposed treatment but also appreciate the significance of the treatment, its implications and consequences. And in this case, we're, think, we're translating that to Darren. He needs to know not only about the facts of the treatment he's refusing, but also the um, significance and implications and consequences of refusing. So it's quite stringent. And the other... Uh, piece of this uh, update on Gillick competence is that since that time courts have really retreated from Gillick and it has become harder for a young person to be considered competent if they disagree with the medical <laughs> treatment being offered and there's been cases and situations where the parents have the final say, despite a child being found to be Gillick competent. So it's it's been watered down a bit, especially in in serious cases. So I would suggest that this case of Darren is a case where you could you could find that he is Gillick competent. He's quite a sort of competent and able and and mature young person. But whether you know, you would ethically say it's appropriate to allow him to end his life, that he understands um, that he takes appearance and on um, short-term effects ahead of life would be really hard. I think what you're raising there, and I'm going to come to die about that because she's used to working with, yeah, with young people, is that's part of adolescence, is not necessarily being consistent, not necessarily making great decisions, valuing things that grown-ups wouldn't necessarily value. And in essence, I think that challenges the idea of competence on itself or capacity. So, Di, how do you feel about that when you're dealing with 16- and 17-year-old boys in particular? Yeah, look, it's really it's really tough. And, and often, you know, that is something that we focus a lot on in our diagnosis talks is how their appearance will change because that is important to them and, you know... Maybe in five or ten years' time, the fact that we saved their life will be looked back and we did the right thing. But for at that moment in time and probably for the few, first few years of intensive treatment, that, that's what he'll be thinking about. At our conference last year, Mark Mercurio from University of Pennsylvania raised this really interesting idea that the person we're responsible to when we're thinking about decision-making for children is that person is a 25-year-old adult which is interesting that he chose that number because sort of the neurobiology would suggest that that's when boys in particular sort of achieve some degree of maturity so claire do you think that's right do you think that mark's hit the nail on the head there that okay 17 is pretty smart but really we're answerable to the 25 year old darren Yes, on the basis that there are limitations to the adolescent's capacity to think ahead to when they're 25 or beyond, then there's an ethical justification for being somewhat paternalistic in deciding that the medical treatment is in their best interests and they don't have the capacity to come to that view. So um, the next step is really to think about, well, then what can you do to mitigate the harms of overriding his choice? 
So what a, what what would we do here at the children or how would we move this forward or what could we do? Yeah, so within our team we have um, a dedicated nurse coordinator who, um, who kind of helps us um, with our young people, um, not only at the diagnosis point but at kind of critical time points or at difficult times in their treatment. I think given it sounds like Darren's quite a well boy so I don't think there's any super rush. I think we should do what we can do to get him on board and to try and understand better really what we're dealing with and I think our nurse coordinator can help a lot in those discussions. I think it's also helpful for them to meet other um, teenagers that have gone through a similar journey and have discussions with their families um, to to walk some of the paths and to see how how things have gone. There's also, um, at the Royal Children's, we've got kind of chronic illness support programs for young people. So, you know, ALL is is quite burdensome, but we can get rid of it and cure him. There are other children with and young people with illnesses that, that don't go away. And so just to have a little bit of that kind of perspective and, you know, just to see what other other young people are going through, I think can be quite helpful. But I think it's complicated, though. Uh, we haven't mentioned the parents, except to say in the case they seem to be agreeing with him. And I think in a sense that really complicates things because you are having to convince uh, both sets... Mm-hmm. If the child was younger and they disagreed, you you might consider, you know, removing the child and forcefully treating. But there's no option of removing Darren, and he's too old to be removed, really, anyway. So you have a whole family who is um, ostensibly wanting to choose a um, an option which could lead to the end of Darren's life. So do you think we can force the issue. We've sort of crossed a threshold, perhaps that harm principle, that harm threshold. That's the difficult thing. So I think in theory, yes, we should be have to be able to force them. But in practice, we are relying on them to be responsible and to come to their treatment. And it is... When I say intensive, it means probably the first month in hospital, if not twice weekly visits, sometimes three times a week visits. And that can persist for several months, depending on what their treatment looks like. So, you know, we're we're entering into a contract where there's mutual understanding and I prescribe the treatment, but he has to adhere to it and be compliant. And it's very easy for him not to be so whether that's, you know, not taking his oral chemotherapy at home and not turning up to appointments, how do we physically bring him in? Do we call the police? Do we... Mm. So, you know, that's where it becomes really challenging. Um, yeah, and it raises another ethical conundrum, which is what is the scope of the duty of mm. an oncologist to ensure adherence? Um, how far should you go in that? Um it doesn't go as far as monitoring that's that's um, inv- invasive. So if we think, though, that it's not all right for him to choose another therapy and then the parents are still agreeing with him in his bad adolescent decision, uh, and while it might be difficult to enforce the full treatment, 
has raised the idea of that you have an obligation. So would you ask a court to make a decision and enforce the treatment? Yes, I think if that's what it came to, we'd have to. Claire, how would you...? Normally, there we would regard parents' decisions about cutting off life-saving treatment to be not within their zone of parental discretion to, to make such a decision. And I think that's where an ethics consultation can be helpful because it can give clinicians... Uh, some empowerment about what is ethically appropriate so they can become more definitive about this is what is required for your child. I'm thinking of those um, Jehovah's Witness cases where the court ordered that, uh, you know, a young person receive a, a transfusion. Uh, but in this case, you can't order a young person to turn up we have three adults almost from the one family all choosing a shocking pathway in most people's view, which is to choose um, prob probable death over, um, over curative treatment. But would a court overrule three adults choosing that pathway? And I'm not sure about that. I think the court would come in favour of treatment yes. and I think Claire one of the things that you highlighted a little earlier was that it is always harmful to override people's decisions and it's harmful to the adolescent uh, and so even if a court agreed and we treated and saved his life yep. we might have done so against at least his initial wishes and we need to undergo strategies that mitigate uh, yes. that harm and, and be concerned about that harm. Claire, you happy with that decision that it would not be ethically appropriate to allow him to do uh, no treatment or a, 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 a less treatment? Yeah, I think that it's ethically, on paper, ethically appropriate to override this young person's choice and the family's choice, but the the question then becomes, what is the process? What is the ethical way of doing it? And I think that's where the discussion heads. I'd be more definitive if I knew a bit more about this family, as always, and learning about what would the consequences be for this family if you, if you took the decision out of their hand forcefully um, or, you know, made some other... That had a state intervention. The second case study from the Essential Ethics podcast further demonstrates the importance of personal beliefs to a patient and their family. In this scenario, the patient's final outcome has been determined by an incurable brain tumour. The 14-year-old girl and her parents have strong views about how much medical intervention they're prepared to face. It forces the clinical team to examine their own beliefs and biases, and to help the family find peace with the terrible choices they have to make. To discuss the case, John Massey has invited Dr Kanika Bhatia and Molly Williams, both consultant oncologists at the Royal Children's Hospital. 
What should a paediatrician do when a parent refuses treatment that is recommended? This is not an uncommon scenario in our modern healthcare system with empowered parents or patients and our concept of shared decision making. But what if refusing treatment means that the child will die? Uh, this is a case that we've made up. And this is a 14-year-old girl we've called Jade, who has a high-grade glioma, it's a type of brain tumour. She presented with headaches, but no evidence of neurological impairment. She's otherwise a healthy Year 8 student. Primary surgical resection with post-operative radiotherapy is the recommended treatment. But with this, there's still a 30% chance that we might prolong her life for two to three years. But the treatment's not curative. Without treatment, she's likely to die within six months. However, surgery might cause significant neurological deficits that impact her quality of life. Her parents wish to try prayer and natural therapies, including considering options overseas. Kanika, do you think it's any one person's decision? Does it lean heavily on the medical opinion just regarding the parents and regarding Jade a bit, or is it all evenly matched? Can you just at the beginning get a sense of that? I think in a um, situation where cure is not possible, um, I think that um, the parents and the child's wishes when it comes to the things that they value in their life, I think, gain greater importance. Um, whereas I think in a situation where cure might be possible um, and the risks of therapy are not high, then I think medical advice then becomes a little bit more prominent as a decision-making tool. But I think all of those decisions still have to be made within the framework of the family's ideas, the family's wishes and beliefs and um, their, um, I think, understanding of the situation as well. Molly, it sounds like the fact that the chance of cure is low opens up a whole lot more options to allow the parents thinking and perspective on this to hold sway. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, John. Um, I don't think any of us as oncologists would feel incredibly strongly that we must insist that she had surgical therapy. We would not insist that she had radiotherapy uh, because those two things can have burdens and our expectation is that she won't be cured ultimately, regardless of that. And I think if Jade and her family have an understanding that her life is likely to be shorter, but potentially more rich in that she can participate in it fully without the therapies that we offer, then I think that all of us would be respectful of their wish to, to not go ahead with surgery and to choose quality of life over quantity of life. So if it's okay not to have active treatment, if we accept that, but their reasons for not wanting to do it are because they're taking an option that you don't necessarily agree with or believe in or like prayer and like natural therapies. Is, is that that important? So I actually don't have any any strong problem with people making decisions for a whole range of different reasons. But I would like to feel confident that the person and the parent has 
heard and understood the information that I'm giving them and still feel that their path is 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 a good path and the right path and not to expect something really unrealistic from that path. So what I've often found sometimes comes up is that if the parents say, we're going to go away and pray and that's going to, or we're going to go away and have cannabinoids and that's going to totally cure her. We've seen that on the internet. Those families, I feel, often have an overblown belief in the power of their natural therapies or their spiritual therapies. Um, And in that situation, I would certainly be spending a pretty decent amount of time trying to explore the family's thoughts and understandings about what medical therapy involves and what their natural therapies might involve to try and get them a bit closer to maybe a realistic understanding of of what those two situations are. So I've looked after families who have felt that natural therapies were important and have said to me, I can't go to the place where my child might die with this cancer. I'm, I can't talk about my child dying with this cancer. I need to keep on hoping that's something that's really important for me. Um, and I actually really respect that as well. And I try and enter into a partnership with the parents in that space where I agree that I'm hoping and wishing for those outcomes as well. And as long as they know that I'm worried and they they have heard at least once that things may not go as they wish, then in the space where no realistic curative treatment is available, I'm very happy for them to pursue other therapies. I don't think people need to think every single day, oh my goodness, my child is going to die from their tumour. I don't need to tell them that every single day and I don't need to tell them that every time I meet with them. But I need them to have heard that that's my big worry and that's why I'm recommending the things that I'm recommending. I'm just hoping that they don't have regrets in the future, that they don't wish that they had made a different decision, that they don't feel like they didn't get enough information to be able to make a good decision in the first place. I think that's what my my biggest concern is. I still want to make it a little bit harder for you because the parents, they want to go and have natural therapies and, and maybe pray. They perhaps they even want to go overseas. So then I'm concerned that they're going to lose the opportunity f- for good palliative care and good end of life. So even if they're not pursuing complex, difficult therapy that's full of side effects, they're still potentially missing out on something. Now, Kanika, am I just being a, a control freak and wanting to give them everything? Uh, or should I be concerned, or would you be concerned about them going overseas for these unproven therapies so and missing on something they could have here if they stayed? Yes, absolutely. So that, I mean, is always an ongoing concern for me. Some of the therapies that families pursue overseas are not without risk, and that is another concern that I have. Often these therapies are unresearched. They are sometimes in institutions that have no supportive care measures. So in many cases I I try and sort of highlight these issues with families if that is what they're proposing. Um, But often in these situations because these are emotional decisions, they're very hard to challenge and they're very hard to give or provide a logical framework to. So the only thing you can do, or I've found that I've been able to do in this space, 
is just to make sure that the family's linked into all of these supports in our hospital so that when they return, that they can access those supports and that child has all the supports they need. And often that can be very um, small things like making sure they have a music therapist or an art therapist that goes to the home because there's small ways that you can engage a family and a child um, that allow you a window into what's going on because the last thing you want to do is lose contact entirely because then you have no hope of helping that child. I think that Kanika is absolutely right. The one thing that you've got to do is keep the door open. You've got to keep on reaching out to these families and making these therapies and these supports available. But you can't force people to access care. Um, in terms of the families going overseas, you know, I... I remember strongly the words of a dad with a, a child with the same incurable brain tumour that we keep on talking about, um, who said, uh, who, who went to pursue natural therapies overseas. Um, and he said, you've told me that there are tigers all around. What should I do? Should I just wait until the tiger takes my child? Or will, do I scoop them up with this hope that maybe I'll be able to get away from the tigers for a while? And that really resonated with me. I really understood where it was coming from. So you've raised quite a number of issues in that, Molly, that we're going to need to, to pull apart. And one of them is in a little bit around sort of risk perception and, and even that is balanced against choice architecture, which is the way we present that information to them because I, th I think there's their perception of what the risks are. But there's also the person explaining it to them who will, for a whole variety of reasons, hopefully as the doctor be informed by their medical, but will have personal views too. So can I, how do you balance that if we're thinking about the choice architecture and the way you're selling the information, if I might use that word, and gauging the parent's risk aversion? In terms of trying to relay openly and honestly what the choices are and what the prognosis is for a family can be really difficult because some families don't wish to have that knowledge. And so I try to be as honest as possible in relaying that prognosis, but I'm also aware that sometimes that information can be very overwhelming. Often when you have a family that's facing a huge life-changing moment, sometimes it can, for some families, take a long time for them to actually process the information that you're providing. So I think in the first instance, when you relay the information, I think it's something that you have to revisit on several occasions to try and check in and see what part of the information that you've given is understood by the family and what their understanding is. And I think it's important to also engage a number of um, your team in that process. So, um, you know, the nurses that we work with and social workers who can also help gauge a parent's understanding and their decision-making, um, then you can get a better idea of whether it's realistic. People do, of course, rely upon their cultural and their spiritual um, and their personal experience to help them cope in such a space. And so I think you have to be aware of all of those factors and try to understand what role they're playing in the decision making. In terms of how do you recognise um, what part your own 
personal perspective or emotions play in the information that you provide. We as a team, I think, heavily involve other colleagues in our decision making so that we actually do have another clinician's or several clinicians perspectives so that when we're telling a family um, what we think is the right pathway we have a number of perspectives that are emotionally a bit more distant from the family informing that decision and I think that that's really important because it provides a lot of confidence that we are hopefully providing the most honest appraisal of the situation. And I think that's important for a family to realise that they're not alone in that decision-making space because it can be incredibly lonely to be making such huge decisions about your child's care and welfare in an, in an area that you have no experience in that you never expected to be in. Um, and I think families need to feel that they have professionals who've been in this space before and guided other families before to help them make the best decision possible. Well, I might ask, Kanika, if you had experience where something like this has happened and and if so, do, do parents then have obviously been respected and allowed to go off and make their choices but actually later on regret those? Most recently I um, was at a conference and I bumped into the parent of one of the children I took care of who had an incurable brain tumour. Um, and it's an incurable brain tumour that is in a location that is not amenable to surgical resection. Um, and they sought further therapies um, uh, privately through a surgeon who was willing to offer them that surgical resection. And uh, that didn't benefit their child's um, life. It didn't prolong her life. And in discussion with this mum after that process had been done, although she didn't regret that decision, she acknowledged that it, it didn't change anything for her child. And I think, though, that even though she could reflect that that decision was not of benefit for her child, I don't think she had regret about taking that decision because I think it was an emotional choice. It helped her deal with what was happening with her child at that time. So we're talking about what the parents need and that's important and of course if it truly is an incurable cancer then the parents are left behind to grieve often for a very very long time so how they remember the illness in the end uh, is important but of course our patient is is the child that is right and in this case jade is 14. Um, Molly, do you think Jade's in a position to determine which pathway? I think it depends on who she is, the kind of person she is, and the, I guess, the maturity of her thinking process. From a palliative care point of view, I've certainly looked after adolescents who prefer to have more pain and less sedation and that's a decision that I'm happy for them to make. I guess one thing that I would say is that although you know we we see in the Charter of Human Rights that every child should have knowledge about their illness and their prognosis and their diagnosis and, and I think it's incredibly important for us to give children the opportunity to take some part and have their voice heard in this really difficult decision making but we shouldn't force them to um, and 
In fact, with my adolescent patients, often I will talk to them about what they would like to know and how much they would like information to be filtered through their parents' voice and how much time they want to spend alone with me. And I've certainly got some patients who say, I actually don't want to hear things from you up front. I'd rather mum and dad filtered that for me beforehand because I find it too anxiety provoking and I feel really confident with them making my decisions for me. Um, there are other young people who feel very strongly that their voice matters and that it is their body and that um, that they should have the ultimate right to have the final say in in decision making about what happens to them and that's also a voice that I would like to hear and and in the space of a palliative diagnosis an incurable diagnosis would uh, present would ha have a very very substantial weight on that child's voice um, in the case of a child who was much 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 more likely to be cured if the child said, well, no, they wouldn't have that therapy, I'd be more worried about um, about accepting that at face value <laughs> because there are some children, I think, who, who genuinely can um, imagine themselves in the future and make decisions based on a knowledge of themselves in the future and there are some who can't do that as adequately. Uh, I think we need to rely on our psychological colleagues um, and our adolescent medicine colleagues to help us to get a better understanding of the child and their capacity to make decisions based on an understanding of where that might lead them in the future. Molly, you have been involved in situations where the parents are shielding the child mm -hmm. from any information. So, Kanika, how do you handle that situation where here... It's between you and the parents and they don't want Jade to know and they're not letting you do what you want to do and talk with her. Yeah. Um, often parents, of course, want to protect their child but hold also an idea of their child as still a child. Um, and so I think sometimes it's about educating parents about the fact that, you know, a child who's, of, say, Jade's age, who's 14, who's able to read, is able to go on the internet, is able to investigate, understands a large part of conversations that might be going on around her, actually is probably a lot more aware of her diagnosis than her parents would recognise. But she doesn't want to hurt her parents by talking about it. And actually that puts her in a more worried, more scared position because she's unable to talk about her feelings freely and honestly and for some families that's enough to bring them around to the idea of having limited discussions with her directly for some families it's it's not and I think that you just continue to have to work and encourage them to try and engage their child um, often I also like to explain to parents that say in children that are maybe a bit younger than Jade that the language that we use, such as cancer or the name of a specific tumour, you know, which adults, it carries a lot of fear that personal experience or society has given us. But children don't always carry that same amount of fear or distress when hearing those words. And it's okay to use those words because it's okay to name what's happening with the child. So they have a better understanding of why their body is changing, why their family is so upset. And it actually can be really... Uh, supportive for the child and protective of the child to open a door and allow them to talk about what's happening. Of course, you will always have parents 
that never reach that space. And that's always a very, very difficult space to be in. That was Kanika Bhatia and Molly Williams, and in the previous case study you heard guests Claire Delaney and Diane Hanna. Many thanks to John Massey for allowing me to package these episodes of the Essential Ethics podcast for you. Also to the show's co-creator, Professor Lynn Gillam, who is Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. There are other episodes available which explore decision-making with children a bit further, and are the quandaries thrown up by delivering care during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can listen to Essential Ethics through any podcasting app or directly from the website of the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne. Go to rch.org.au bioethics and you'll also find useful references on ethics and the law. Another podcast produced by paediatricians at the Royal Children's Hospital is called RCH Kids Health Info. The hosts break down common concerns of parents in an easily accessible way. This episode of Pomegranate Health forms part of the RACP Congress digital program. If you log in, you'll find on-demand recorded lectures and webinars on topics such as paediatric mental health, healthy cities, and equitable delivery of disability services. At recpcongress.com.au, there's also a schedule of future webinars running all the way to October, which you can attend virtually live. To all listeners staring this endless pandemic in the face, we're immensely grateful for your service. Please look after your well-being as well as that of your patients. The college's counselling service, Converge International, has some specific supports just for you. All the best. I'm Mick Cavazzini.